Amen. Thank you, Andrew, and the rest of the crew for leading us this morning. I want to invite you to Joel, the book of Joel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. That's your neighborhood. You find Joel right in the middle there. Joel, we're going to be in chapter two as we've been walking through Joel. Some of you may be unaware that we were in the book of Acts and we have taken sort of a, a break from the book of Acts and jump back to Joel because Joel has a lot to say about what's happening in the life of the church at Pentecost and beyond. Really, what's happening in the life of the church now and what will be future. So we go back to Joel and today we get a bit of a reprieve, a bit of a break from the onslaught of judgment that Joel is preaching. Now, I do have, I do have a lot of notes today. So I'm going to spend less time introducing the text today. And hopefully those of you who have been uh, unaware or not able to track along with us, hopefully you'll be able to find your way into how this text today relates to your life, how you may apply it faithfully. Now to give you a bit of a review, though, Joel's message is about a locust plague. That locust plague became sort of an illustration that he used to talk about the coming invasion of Babylon against Judah. Now some place Joel earlier and has a different context. I'm convinced that this is most likely where it where it happened, when Joel prophesied. He used this locust plague to prophesy the coming invasion of Babylon when the people would be taken into captivity for 70 years. Uh, you know that from when we talked, uh, when we talked about uh, Jeremiah. We walked through the entire book of Jeremiah. Long, slow, hard, deep stuff. <laughs> you remember that. And now Joel is preaching this message, but he speaks explicitly of the day of the Lord. So we kind of have these three points in mind. Okay, the locust plague is the illustration. The coming invasion that Babylon is, is bringing against them, Nebuchadnezzar is leading against them. But then even that is not the end. That's a way that God shows the judgment he is willing to put upon his people to make them what he wants them to be. But it also speaks to the future for us of the day of the Lord. When Christ will return and judgment will be poured out upon all people. Those of us who believe, having escaped the wrath that is to come. But as Peter says, if it's the believers who are scarcely saved, then what's going to happen to those who disobey the gospel? What's going to happen to those? If we go through trials, if we go through suffering, if God disciplines us because he loves us, if he disciplines us, then what will come of those who reject God, who reject the gospel? That's where we are. That was a lot more intro than I wanted to give you. I'm sorry. Joel 2, verses 12 through 17. This is our text for today. Hear the word of the Lord. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, 
with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Let's pray once more. Father, we do need your help. Make my words clear and concise for your glory. That the gospel may go forth. That we may look upon Jesus. That we may look upon him with the eyes of faith and be satisfied. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. The title today is The Way of Return. The Way of Return. We've encountered in chapter 1, in the beginning of chapter 2, this buildup that is the terror of the day of the Lord. Now, according to the grace and mercy of God, we get to discover in this text, as we've sort of trudged through the, the difficult stuff, we get to discover what God intends for us to do in response. We discover the way of salvation, the way to return, the way of escape. So the theme today, with judgment looming, with judgment looming, God graciously shows us the way to return to him. With judgment looming, God graciously shows us the way to return to him. And I want to ask two questions that I believe the, the text answers for us today. So two questions that God answers for us. The first is the remedy, return. A question about what is the remedy? The remedy is return, verses 12 through 14. Now, you've heard me use the phrase in the past weeks about remedial judgment, and I've explained that, but here's where you start to see uh, that unpacked, all right? A remedial judgment is judgment that brings about a remedy, and this is what God does for his people, and this is what God would do for you. If you're an unbeliever today, and you would accept his word, and you hear of what's to come, your future under the wrath of God in hell forever, and you would say, okay, knowing that judgment, then what is the way out? The way out is repentance and faith. The way out is Jesus. So remedial judgment is judgment that says, I'm pointing you to the way. So what is the remedy? It is to return. We've been focusing on the judgment aspect of it, the judgment. Now we get to see the remedy that God intends. So here's how returning to God manifests. I think we can see this in three ways from the text. Returning, how returning manifests in three ways. First off, and I've, I've shaped these as, as uh, commands. Repent, 
for real. Repent for real. You see it right there in the text. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Repent for real. We want to contrast this with the fake measures of repentance that we've already observed. We can jump ahead to the rend your hearts and not your garments. So it appears like maybe there were people along the history of of Israel, we've seen record of this actually, where they would fulfill the the visible requirements of of repentance and say, oh, well, I tore my clothes. Like we got Hulk Hogan's up in there. I tore my clothes. Are we good, God? Are we good? That's not repentance. It's like when, when we teach our kids to say sorry, and it's like, fine, sorry. You, you know it. Well, was that real? And then, and then as a parent, you're like, no, I want you to say it and mean it. <laughs> oh. See, see, God does not want us to respond to his judgment, his discipline. He does not want us to respond with outward appearances, but with real repentance. Repent for real. God's words here, return to me. It's his words that he's speaking right here. Return to me. And that return is true repentance. And when you've gone your way long enough, we've gone astray like wandering sheep, This is the word of the Lord that comes to you as the good shepherd. Come unto me. You know, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me. It's the prodigal son who finally had enough of the pig slop when he swallowed another bite due to his extreme hunger. And then he turned his head and saw the face of a pig staring at him. Before he said, okay, I need to go back. And it was true repentance. It was real repentance. He finally woke up and returned to his father. And it's the wayward in the same way who realize how desperate they've become on the destructive ways of the world. Would you repent for real? Would you return? Would you return? Think about that in your own life. Return. Return. Some of you here today, can I say it this way? You, you, you've started your return. You've started your return. I'm so thankful. I rejoice with you. You've started your return and, and maybe you're getting a fresh sight of Jesus. Maybe, maybe you're sensitive again like you haven't been for a long time. Maybe some of you, for the very first time, it's not even a return. It's just discovery. <laughs> but you're sensitive to the movement of the Holy Spirit on your heart. I would tell you today, according to the Word of God, don't let it stop there. Don't let it stop. Don't just make a partial turn here. God says, don't let this be a partial turn. Return, don't turn enough to feel good about yourself and then go back to the old ways. He says, return to me with all of your heart. But our return 
comes up short sometimes, doesn't it? We're encountering the Word of God and the truth of God. We come up short when we start our return in order to feel a certain way. There's so much application I hope the Holy Spirit will help you with in these next statements. We return, and then we start to feel a certain way, and then we get comfortable there. We start to investigate the things of God again, and it's like, oh, I'm doing good for myself. And then we get complacent, and we don't complete the return. We don't return with all of our heart. So we come up short when we do that. We come up short when we start our return for show. Oh, let me rend these garments. When you start your return for somebody else, it will come up short. It won't be a real return. Can I submit to you as a, as a husband and a father, <laughs> men, I hope you can identify with this, that starting of a return because you know, hey, it's your, your wife and your kids. They're depending on your leadership and you start that return and then it's almost like your pride becomes too big for you to complete the return. Oh, well, maybe if I just get them in a, you know, church, maybe we open the Bible on occasion. But it's not wholehearted. It's not true. It's about as deep as application as I'm going to go for these statements. We start that return for somebody else, then it's going to be a half-hearted return. We come up short when we start our return only to exchange false gods. You turn from the God you're worshiping now and you don't turn to the one true God, what you have done is exchanged an idol. Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bound to this one anymore, but I've got this one over here. We come up short when we start our return as a negotiation with God. Well, if I do this, then God's going to do this. Text actually doesn't say that. We're going to get there. In these ways, our return is not what God prescribes. It's more like the false repentance of those not seeking the glory of God, but seeking to escape the pain of judgment. It's not that I want God. It's that I don't want his judgment. Let me just evade this. Let me sidestep this. Let me get around this. Let me escape what he's got coming. And then people like Peter would say, hey, rejoice in the midst of that stuff. You're in it. You're in the thick of it because God is doing something on purpose. He intends for us to truly return to him, truly repent. Calvin said, moderate repentance will not do. And this is why glances at Jesus, hear me, glances at Jesus are not sufficient to sustain you in your Christian life. Many of you know that we got a new driver in the family. She's like, oh no. What's he going to say? But I find myself reviewing all the things that are now like just second nature to me as a driver. When I'm driving, I'm trying to teach this, and, and I remember that this just kind of came to me as I learned to drive. When I'm driving, you all know it. You kind of glance at your speed. You glance at your mirrors. But then you focus on the road. You take those glances but you're focused on the drive. Now, some of us, understand me, on the drive of life are headed our own way. 
We're committed to our own ambitions while claiming to be Christians. And our sights of Jesus are like the mirror glances. What I'm going to do? Oh, Jesus, there's a head nod. Oh, Jesus, there's something in the offering plate. Oh, Jesus, there's me attending church. Take note of these things, but I'm going to drive my own way. I'm going to go my own way. And we think that that's enough to make us to be like him. And you think that somehow you live your life and you're going to end up like Jesus, clothed in every practical way in his righteousness. We think that's enough. Can I say it this way? We think that kind of Christian living is enough to save us? Like, is that true faith? Is that true repentance? You're going your own way. You're driving your own way. And the word says, Return. The word says, truly repent. The word says, turn around and set your eyes, fix your gaze upon Jesus. Fix your life upon him. Return. Turn around. If you're unsure of what this looks like, God helps us. He says, this looks like Fasting. Fasting is a clear expression of desire for God, dependence upon him, the need for his wisdom, the need for his help in returning. You may recall the the, uh, topic of fasting from a few weeks ago, and I haven't forgot about that. It seems like the Lord may be leading us toward, together as a church, a fast of some sorts. He says it looks like fasting, but it also looks like weeping. And this weeping is about our sin. It's about the offenses that we've committed against a holy God. It ought to be enough to bring tears to our eyes. Fasting, that's what it looks like. Weeping, that's what it looks like. But also mourning. Mourning. He says mourning is in order in the case of the locust plague, right? In the case of the coming invasion, yet many of us have experienced the loss of certain things, maybe even the particular blessings that God removed because we had turned those things into perversions. You ought to mourn over the loss of things that God has taken away to bring you to the place of repentance, returning to him. Good things he intended for you, withdrawn. We mourn what is lost due to our own rebellion. And God prescribes these things, fasting, weeping, mourning, as evidence that real repentance is taking place. And he gives us that picture that we've pointed to in verse 13. A word picture to sort of burn the point into our minds. Rend your hearts, not your garments. And there's not another command like this in the Bible. Numerous times we're told to circumcise our hearts. Circumcise our hearts. Only here we're told to rend our hearts, to literally like tear our hearts in two. So real repentance has not taken place until the heart is actually changed. So save your clothes. Save your show of remorse. Save the performance And rend your heart before God that he may remake it, that he may bring the healing that is needed in your life. 
He says, repent for real. Repent for real. He shows us how to do that in those, those verses. He shows us a little more of how to do that. But then Joel picks up the message and he says, hey, remember why you can do this. Remember why you can do this. So repent for real. That's the first manifestation of returning to God. Repent for real. Second, remember God's character. Remember God's character. So again, this is more of the why we return. The command is repeated in verse 13. This time it comes from the mouth of Joel. So he said, return to me. That was God's words. Now, verse 13, return to the Lord your God. We're going to see it in just a minute, but don't you love how God uses other people to spur us on in our repentance? Some of y'all have to sit and think about that for a minute. Maybe you take a moment right now and thank God for the people that he surrounded you with that truly want the best for you. Thank God for those people. These are the people that want Christ's likeness in you. These are the people that want you to grow in your faith, to abound, to thrive. It may be a friend, it may be a Sunday school teacher, it may be a preacher, a mentor, it may be someone who's discipling you. God has testified to his own character, but these are the folks that repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And they tell you again and again and again. They remind you over and over and over. They're the ones that carry you back to God after you forget his word and you start to let in the lies. You start to believe the lie. So Joel says, y'all remember what God proclaimed to Moses on the mount? And he's basically quoting Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It says, he proclaimed his name to him. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, twice. He says, the name of God. And then he unpacks he unpacks all the things that Joel says right here. He's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But who will by no means clear the guilty? We've heard the judgment. Now Joel is pointing us back to the, the first half and saying, this is your God. Turn to him. Remember God's character. He's gracious. We don't deserve it, but he shows us the way of return. He's merciful. He looks upon our pitiful condition and reaches down to us and draws us to himself. And he's slow to anger. He's a patient God, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so we can never say of God with any weight, I never had a second chance. God help those people that try to use that in the end. He is truly the God of second chances. Chance after chance after chance to return. Plea after plea. How many can testify to that today? Over and over and over again. I could have had him. 
finally, after all these chances, I heard his word and I responded and I returned. He is slow to anger, but don't get this mixed up. His patience will not delay his judgment forever. So what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? He's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This phrase is so rich in the Old Testament. It's that covenant faithfulness. It is God maintaining his promises, keeping his word to a thousand generations. It's love that reconciles. It's love that forgives 70 times seven. Don't forget. Don't forget what, what ha- what's happening. As Joel's, he's, he's remembering Exodus 34. All right. Moses is hearing these things about the name of God. And you know what he's receiving as he's hearing these things? The second copy of the Ten Commandments. So if you had any question about God's patience, he's like, hey, you destroyed this the first time because these people are so wicked. (laughs) These people are so wicked. I'm giving it to you again. Here's you another chance. Then Joel declares for us the result of these things. He relents over disaster. And that really leads us into the third way it manifests. Return manifests a third way. And this one's briefer. More brief? Rest in God's freedom. Rest in God's freedom. Verse 14. This is what I gave you a hint of earlier. Verse 14. I love the way Joel says it. Who knows? Hey, you return. You return. Repent. Who knows? Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Why would these things be important? Because the locust plague has wiped out all the offerings. You have nothing to make an offering with. So now he says, hey, if he brings back the grain, if he, if he brings back everything you need to worship him, he brings back the wine, you can make your offerings. But Joel says, I'm not giving you any guarantee. Can you rest in the freedom of God, believer? I, I don't know that we get the weight of this point. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. I need to say it again. He does whatever he pleases. So when it comes to your life and you start to think that you're entitled to something because you have responded in a certain way, God says, I am not bound to your expectations. I can do what I want. That's a hard truth to accept. That's a hard truth. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
Exodus 33, Romans 9. He will not be manipulated into doing what we want. No, no, listen to this, listen to this. We return, Christians, we return. Why? Because he is worthy. We return because he is worthy. He deserves our worship. He is Lord over every part of our lives, or at least in theory, follower of Jesus. He is Lord. So on Joel's words here, we don't return just hoping that things will get better. Well, if I do this, then God will act in a certain way. We can't return as an act of worship and and expect him to just meet all of our demands. No, we return as worship regardless of what God does afterward. God, if you're pleased to keep us grainless and drinkless for the rest of our lives, so be it, we're returning. Now, that's not the end of it, but understand the weight of it. No deals, no negotiations, no manipulations, just return. God is free to do what he will. Now, that is the remedy. What is the remedy? To return. Then, secondly, the method. What is the method? Gather, gather. Verses 15 to 17, gather. Isn't it just like God to assemble his people? Just like God to assemble his people. Tell them to come together. That's his message. Tell them to come together. Y'all get together. That's the first step. Get together. Blow a trumpet because I need you people to get together. And if y'all know anything about my ministry, you know how highly I esteem gathering with the saints of God in the life of every believer. But note a few characteristics about this gathering for repentance. First off, it is of utmost importance. It is of utmost importance. So the trumpet of disaster is now a trumpet of return and repentance. Do you see how God has redeemed it? Initially, the trumpet was, hey, everybody come to worship together. Then it became, in chapter 1, blow the trumpet and let people know that disaster is coming. And now God is even recovering the use of the trumpet for his worship. So blow the trumpet to return, to repent. We all quickly slip into the ways of the world with number one at the center of all things. We treat God as if he's our own little personal savior and he deals only with me personally. And if that's where we live our Christian life, then we have an entirely self-serving understanding of God. If that's your mindset, then you will never value the gathering of the saints. So his response here is not, hey, get in your prayer closet all alone by yourself and deal with me because it's just me and you, okay? No, no. You get with the people. You go with the people because your sin doesn't just affect you. The mature Christian starts to recognize that sin affects the whole body. 
that we are interconnected as believers in the body of Christ. And no matter how hard you may try, a true believer cannot simply sever itself from the body. So the prescription is not, hey, go to your own homes, your own rooms, and make a bunch of individual holiness decisions. No. He's interested in making us a holy people, creating a brand new society that is holy, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a temple, as Peter says, a temple of living stones, living stone built upon living stone, a house for his presence, a body for his mission. Our gathering, if you're not following me, let me be clear, our gathering is a crucial part of returning to God. It is of utmost importance. Second characteristic, all-inclusive attendance. All-inclusive attendance. Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. All-inclusive attendance. We're getting near the end. Y'all follow me? Nobody gets to skip out on the gathering. The elders are called in. So, older folks, don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie that just because the next generation is coming, the next generation is rising up to take the baton of faith, that your influence and your participation are less important. Don't get that idea. We need you. You helped get us here. Now stick with us and push us forward in our sanctification. But you know what? The children don't get to skip out either. No children's church. None of this, ah, send them away so we can get things done. No. Do you understand? Discipling our children, teaching them what returning to the Lord looks like. That is getting things done. Parents, don't devalue your task of training children as worshipers, the habits you're developing right now, the distractions, the struggles, the frustrations, all of those are a part of showing our children the God of our faith. How else will they know how to return when they've stumbled and fallen in the Christian life? Show them and notice, I, I notice this. Notice, not even the nursing infants get to skip out. It's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to show them from day one, not just when we think they're ready for it. So the baby longing for milk will one day long for the God of salvation. Who else has to show up? I won't give a lot of detail here, but it's the groom and the bride. It's the groom and the bride, okay? This is the idea of a, like 
They just had the reception. His room and her chamber are not different rooms. So the bride and the groom are on the verge of consummating their union. And God says, that's postponed because this is more important. God says, I'm sorry, you have to wait. You have to wait on that because this is more critical. Come handle the matters of repentance first. And it calls to mind the words of Jesus. Hey, let the dead bury their own dead. Oh, let me go say bye to my family. Hey, you follow me. Comparison, your your love for your family is going to look like hate. You put your hand to the plow and you don't look back. Come handle the matters of repentance. There's a third characteristic here in the method of gathering. God prescribes an intercessory appeal. Intercessory appeal. He says to the priests, verse 17, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. That literally is, is ruled over by the nations Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So God says, the priests among you ought to weep. Now, I don't want to dig too much into application on who is the priest, okay? We're a priesthood. I think to some degree this is going to apply to all of us. It does apply to religious leaders, though. The command is to say these things. Spare your people. Make them not a reproach. Make them not a byword. Don't let the nation say, where is their God? This text shows us a little more than just how we respond. Because if you think that returning to God and saying a few things on your own is going to smooth everything over, That he's just going to, well, it's okay. I know you didn't mean all that stuff. The intercessory appeal of the priest points us to a better priest. Hear me. The intercessory appeal points us to another who made a far better intercessory appeal. We have an intercessor. We have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the one making his appeal to God, not on the basis of, ah, these folks are not as bad as you say. No, they're terrible, sinful, infinitely sinful, but I am infinitely righteous. Let me take their sin. Give them my righteousness. That's the kind of intercession that happens for the believer, folks. That's the kind of intercession that happens from the mouth of Jesus. So he goes to the Father and he says, on my own perfection, on my own righteousness, receive them. Receive them. I'll take their sin. 
This is our only hope, that God will relent. This is the only one that pleased God. The only one who appeased his wrath. Jesus is the full proof. That God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Who will, who will by no means clear the guilty? And so you unbeliever today, do you realize that you are guilty And God will not just simply forget about these things. But you must find your remedy. You must find your redemption. You must find your forgiveness in the Savior who gave his life. Who took your guilt and shame, your sin, all the offenses that you've committed against God upon himself. In order that you may, through faith, have salvation. He became our guilt. We became the righteousness of God in him. Man, that's the gospel word. I don't know what else to say, but believers, you'll rejoice in that as you return. Humbly, reverently return with rejoicing. Thank God for who he is, for what he has done. Unbeliever, today is the day of salvation. That's it. I'm guilty, I know it, but I know what Jesus has done. I believe in him. I surrender my life to him. It is God's grace that does this. Pray with me.